0: You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. On Wednesday night, uh, this past week, my wife went to the store to pick up an Easter basket for my middle son's Easter party. And when she went up to the counter to pay for the basket, the woman that was standing there was actually a teenage girl, said to her, you know, we really haven't sold a whole lot of Easter stuff this year, which prompted my wife to ask the question, well, hey, why do you think that is? Um, To which she responded by saying, honestly, I think people just care less and less about Easter, which she said, you know, I think, some people think it's about a bunny, But other people, I think mainly Christians, I think they believe something like uh, their God died and then he rose from the dead. And this opened the opportunity for, uh, for my wife to actually have a gospel conversation with her. But as she was sharing this story with me, I was really just struck by how this teenage girl could make such a casual comment about such an extraordinary claim. That Christians believe this is a day where their God died and rose from the dead. I mean, here's a girl who's at least heard enough about the Easter story that she knows the general details of the event, and yet it's an event that up to this point has been in no way compelling or transforming in her life. And the reason I share that is maybe for some of you, uh, that's how you come into the room today, in that you have heard about the resurrection, about this man named Jesus, and yet, though you are familiar with the details of the Easter message, if you can be honest, the reality is it's not made that much of a difference in your day-to-day life, and If that's where you are, I want you to know I really am so glad that you are here. Because as Christians, we truly believe that the Easter message is a story that addresses that gnawing angst inside of you. That there has to be more to life than this. In John chapter 11 verse 25, Jesus made a claim about himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Earlier in John 10, Jesus says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. There's a real enemy out there that wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. But Jesus said, I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. And that's what the Easter story is really all about. And so if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to go with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put the text on the screen for you. But we're going to look in John chapter 20, and we're going to explore one of the four resurrection accounts... Um, That is recorded for us in the Scripture. And before we dive into this, I want to share two reasons why the resurrection is so important. Two reasons why this matters. Two reasons why you need to listen today to someone get up and talk about an event that happened two thousand years ago. Okay. And what I want you to know is this: is the first thing I want you to consider today before we dive into our text. The reason the resurrection is so important is because every single one of you will one day die. I came across an article this week with a headline that read the following. Google's co-founders and other Silicon Valley billionaires are trying to live forever. It's an article that went on to State how because of the startling reality that 150,000 people die every single day, that Nobel Prize winning scientists along with icons from the entertainment industry and tech billionaires have combined forces to, and I quote, solve death by ending the aging process forever. It's a really lofty go. I admire their efforts, but they are now a year in, and still the last time I checked, our mortality rate is at 100%. Which means we all have to wrestle with the question is, what's going to happen to me, not if, but when, I die? Uh, This is a question that Damien echoes, who is a member of the West Memphis Three, that he wrestles with in his book, Life After Death. And he asks the following, is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It has been the defining issue for entire cultures, from ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question that any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to the hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has lost a child. You will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death, he goes on to say, is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. I've actually been on both sides of this wrecking ball. I've uh, been in a hospital whenever family decided to take their three-year-old daughter off of life support. And I have also sat in a hospital with a woman as we watched her husband of 55 years draw his last breath on earth. I've preached funerals for people who are young. I've preached funerals for people who are old. And in the midst of all of that, what I've been reminded of over and over again is no matter who you are or where you come from, no matter whether you're rich or you're poor, you're young or you're old, all of us, Will one day die. Uh, Tim Keller says the following. says, the fact is staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. But despite our best intentions, death is still for the most part random, and it is absolutely coming. Therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how we uh, how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, death will inevitably ruin it all. So happy Easter to everybody. Just here to try to make you feel a little bit better today. So yeah, I'm sure to inspire you. So death, unfortunately, is a reality. And it is the great equalizer. And therefore, listen, we would honestly be foolish not to at least give some sort of thought and a consideration to this question of what's going to happen to me whenever I die. And one of the reasons the resurrection is so important is because the resurrection of Jesus gives us an answer to that ultimate question. Okay. So that's one of the reasons the resurrection is important. Another reason I'll share with you and then we'll move on that we believe the resurrection is so important is because it is central to the faith of Christianity. It is central to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says the following in verse 3, for I delivered to you as a first importance. The most important thing I can tell you, Paul says, is that Christ died for our sins. And in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with those scriptures. And then he goes on in verse 14. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What we are doing today, it's it's ridiculous, he says. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those of us, he said, those who have fallen asleep in Christ who have perished, right? I mean, they're, they're done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying here is the entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection. It's not just like a throwaway thing. Take it or leave it. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead... Paul says, our faith and our preaching is useless. We are a slave to sins, and the dead are lost forever. That means when you die, you go to the ground, and that's it, right? There's just a long, eternal nothingness. Apart from the resurrection, Paul says, there is no Savior, there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness of sin, no hope of a resurrected, eternal life. So, the resurrection matters. It matters because one day, you will die, and it matters because it is central to what we claim to believe as Christians. So, with that in mind, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 20. Hopefully, you're already there. John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. And just to set the context for you, Jesus' disciples are absolutely shell-shocked. They left everything to follow this man, Jesus. They have put all of their hope in him, and now he's dead. He's dead. And this happened very quickly. I mean, they got a phone call, basically, on, on a Friday morning that said, Hey, Jesus has been arrested by the time they get there. I mean, he's already, I mean, on the cross, and by that Friday evening, he's dead. Okay? So, I mean, they're, they're, they're emotional. They don't even have a clue what to do. And it says in chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, John is writing the Gospel of John, and any idea who he's talking about here when he's talking about the one whom Jesus loved? Anybody know? Yeah, he's talking about himself, which you can laugh about that. That's pretty funny. This is the last Gospel that was written, and John's like, since all my other buddies are dead and can't do anything about it, I'm putting in the Bible that I'm the one Jesus loved. And so they're running, right? I'm sorry, Mary runs. She sees that the tomb is empty. She runs to Simon Peter. She runs to John. She says the following, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid them. Now just stop right there and notice this. Whenever Mary came to the tomb, her first conclusion is not Jesus has risen from the dead but her very first thought is somebody has stolen his body. And the reason this is so significant is because nobody in the first century thought Jesus was gonna get out of the grave. Right, like Just like us, they were logical people who believed that a dead body stays dead. And therefore, nobody could have imagined the resurrection of Jesus. Not even the people who were were closest to him. And I want you to hear that because some of you hear others say, Ah, well, you know, the resurrection, that's just a fabricated story. That's just something the disciples made up to try to sell people on a legend. Guys, the disciples didn't even have a, a, a place for this in their brain to imagine something like this. Like like Mary shows up at the tomb, and she does not believe the resurrection, even though it's true. right? I mean, she goes to Peter and John and says, man, somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. So if you're here today and you doubt the resurrection, if you are skeptical, if you're like, man, I believe Jesus was an historical figure, which by the way, Everybody believes that now, like there's no disputing evidence that Jesus really did exist. So if you're here and you're like, I believe he was a real person. I even believe he was a real prophet. I believe his teachings are worth following, but man, I do not believe in the resurrection. Well, you're in good company because even Jesus's best friends had a hard time believing this on Easter morning. So Mary, she's like, someone's taking the body. She goes, she tells John, she tells Peter verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Again, it's talking about John. John's talking about himself there. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And when they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together. Look at this. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So that seems like a pretty insignificant detail, especially when you're talking about the resurrection of God. But John's clearly in Enneagram 3. He's highly competitive. And he's like, I just want everybody to know for all eternity that I beat John to the tomb. So I'm faster than him, right? It's hilarious. But then it says that he gets to the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw. And I would underline the word saw or circle it. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So he stopped just short. What do you think Peter did whenever he got to the tomb? He just blew right in, man. What I love about Peter—he'll always say it whether it should be said or not, and he'll always do it whether it should be done or not. So Peter, the slow disciple, right? He finally gets there. He gets to the tomb. But then he goes into the tomb, verse 6, and then here's this word again. He saw, circle that word, underline, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So apparently the resurrected Jesus doesn't need dead man clothes anymore. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, he also went in, and here's the word again, and he saw, and he what? He believed. A word for Saul that appears in verse 5, 6, and 8 is the Greek word theore, which is where we get our English word from theorize. And it means to observe intently for the purpose of discovering an explanation, which means, please catch this, before Peter and John just believed in the resurrection of Jesus, they begin to reason first. They begin to think about, let me think about this for a second. What's going on here? They, they, they begin to examine the evidence. And then the evidence demanded the verdict, okay, that Jesus truly has gotten out of the grave. Now, the reason this is important is some of you have been told Christianity is a blind faith. Just believe. Just believe, man. Just believe. Don't worry worry about any of the historical facts. Don't worry about that. Just believe. But that's not what we see right here on the first Easter morning. I mean, before they believe, they actually begin to measure and look at the evidence. And I believe today that if you're really going to grasp the resurrection of Jesus, you need to do the same thing. And I know for some of you, you're like, well, how do I do that? Because I'm not, like, physically at the tomb. So how am I going to see any evidence? Like, they got a chance to say, well, listen, there is tons of evidence out there that points to the historical reality that Jesus got out of the grave. And there is no way I have time to go into all of it. But I do want to share with you four pieces of historical evidence, very quickly, um, that lead Christians to believe this was a real historical event. And I'm going to use the acronym FEAT. F-E-A-T Which is going to seem a little bit cheesy, but hopefully it'll help you remember it, okay? So four reason, and if you're kind of here checking out the whole resurrection thing, there's four reasons why we as Christians believe the historical evidence that Jesus actually got out of the grave. The first one is because we believe he experienced a fatal torment. Secondly, we believe there was really an empty tomb. Third, because of his appearances, the people he actually appeared to. And the fourth is because of the transformation that took place post-resurrection. So let me just walk through each one of these quickly. First, we believe that Jesus historically got out of the grave because we believe Jesus experienced a fatal torment. Did you know the single greatest objection among secular scholars to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what scholars call the swoon theory? And you know what the swoon theory is? The swoon theory is this, that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't actually die. He just passed out. Lost a little blood. so They thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb. And then three days later, he woke up. Push the stone away, snuck past the guards. Right, like that's that is literally like the leading objection to the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the major problems with this theory is, if you know anything about history, you know the Romans were really good at killing people dead. Like there is no account throughout history of anybody surviving a crucifixion. And yet, despite this evidence, there are some who really believe, educated people who really believe, despite the fact that Jesus was flogged with a cat of nine tails, which modern scientists tell us is equivalent to being shot in the back with a shotgun at close range, and then after being flogged, he was made to carry his 300-pound cross and then was nailed to it with nine-inch spikes. That somehow, rather than dying, he just passed out only to three days later, roll away a stone that was so heavy that historians say take three people to roll away. And then, probably even most unbelievable, he snuck past the guards and convinced all of his disciples, actually, I'm just fine. I just defeated death. Right, like, does that seem crazy to anybody else in here? Like, I, I, I'm no doctor, but, but I don't care how fit you are. If Jesus Christ would have done CrossFit himself, Right? There is no way that he or anybody else could have survived the crucifixion. It's just not possible. And that's one of the reasons that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, because he actually died. Second, we believe in the resurrection, because there really was an empty tomb. In Matthew 28, in one of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, people begin to proclaim, Jesus has risen. And the Jewish officials in response to this did not say, actually, guys, you're a bunch of idiots. Let's just walk about 50 feet over here. Look at the tomb. Bam, there's the body. They didn't say that. But rather, what they began to do in response in in Matthew 28 is pay off guards to tell the people that actually the body had been stolen. Now, why would they do that? Because Jesus' body wasn't there anymore. It was no longer in the tomb. And because the tomb is still empty today, do you realize there has never been a shrine for Jesus? During this time, there were at least 50 shrines for holy men who had been buried and been respected. But for Jesus, there's never been any candles, never been any cards, never been any flowers. Why? Because the tomb has been empty since this day, since this Easter morning. We believe this. Another historical proof for the resurrection of Jesus is the appearances. Um, how many of you in here have read the Lord of the Rings. Okay, how many of you have watched the movie, The Lord of the Rings? Okay, a lot more of us. Like, that's a proper myth. It's got character development. It's got narrative arc. The right people come in at just the right time. But when you read the Bible, you know, compared to any other fictional novel, it does not read like fiction. Right, And one of the claims or one of the the reasons we say that is whenever you look at the appearances of Jesus, of when he appeared to people after his resurrection, they are underwhelming and I would even say embarrassing. For example, all of the gospels tell us that the first people that Jesus appeared to were women. And the reason that's somewhat embarrassing in the first century is because women were held with so little value that their witness was not even credible in the court of law. So it didn't matter what you said. Immediately, if you were a lady in the first century, you were dismissed to just say, oh, well, what you've seen doesn't matter. And one of the ladies, by the way, that Jesus first appeared to was Mary Magdalene, as we'll see in John 20. And if you know anything about Mary Magdalene, you know at one point she was possessed with seven demons. So imagine me coming to you and saying, hey, Jesus got out of the grave. How do you know, bro? Mary Magdalene. You know her, the one with the seven demons? She told me. It's like, oh, really? Thanks. And I'll consider that. It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? For that to be recorded in the scripture, there's another story where Jesus appears to his disciples for the very first time. And they're like, it's a ghost. And he's like, no, I'm not a ghost. And they're like, prove it. And he says, okay. He takes some fish and just goes, and starts eating. The end of the story. That is what we call anticlimactic. Right? It is underwhelming. Embarrassing. Why in the world is this in the scriptures? Because it's not fiction. It's a historical account. People are just telling you how the resurrection happened, what Jesus really did among real people. That's one of the reasons we believe in the resurrection. Fourth and finally, one of the reasons we believe the resurrection is an historical event is because of the transformation that happened after Jesus got out of the grave. I'm not sure if you have ever thought about this, but think about it. In the span of 300 years, 300 years, this is historical evidence, a small following of seemingly insignificant believers grew to over 25 million people that succeeded in turning the empire upside down despite great persecution. Go try to start a movement like that. Never been one like it in the history of the world. The cowardly disciples go from being fearful to fearless, 10 of the 12 of Jesus' disciples would be martyred for their faith. Peter himself, who was so scared of a middle school girl that he denied Jesus three times, eventually would be crucified upside down because he wouldn't shut up about saying, I really have seen the resurrected Jesus. On top of that, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' mothers and brothers claimed that he was God. Don't you think about that? Like, what would it take for you to convince your brother that you are God? <laughs> Like, it is easy to convince people from a distance. But when your mother says, he's God, and your brother says, yep, he's God, and your other brother says, praise him, right? Like, something significant has happened here. On top of that, Jesus split time in half, B.C. and A.D. The Jewish calendar was changed Despite the fact that for thousands of years, Jews always celebrated the Sabbath on a Saturday upon the resurrection. They moved it to a Sunday. So just imagine that on Monday, which is the first day of your working week. We're like, actually, now we're going to do Sabbath. Don't work on Monday. Imagine if a whole nation did that. That's what happened after Jesus got out of the grave. And because of that, Jordan Peterson, who is a psychologist and a sociologist, who wrote the uh, best-selling book, uh, Twelve Rules of Your Life. Uh, He's actually an atheist, an agnostic, one of the two. I'm not really sure, but he says the following... Even for diehard and essentially reductionist atheists of the scientific type. Think about Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. A great mystery remains. Why has this thoroughly implausible story exercised such an immense impact? So the evidence is out there. There's so much more we could talk about. Go and look for it, okay? The, the evidence is there. And I would encourage you. Go research it, process it, look into it, just as we see Peter and John do today. Think about the things I've just shared. Wrestle with that and ask yourself, what really happened that led to these things taking place? Peter and John, again, they show up to the tomb. They don't just believe right away. They begin to look for the evidence. But then the evidence demands a verdict that Jesus has risen. So they believe, and then they go to their homes because, I mean, Jesus isn't there. But verse 11, if you look with me, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept, and she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So this is a supernatural event taking place here. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, for they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. So she still thinks the body's been stolen. Verse 14, having said this, she turned and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I love how gentle Jesus is here. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned, and she said to him in Aramaic Rabbani, which means, Teacher, let me ask you a question real fast. Why did Jesus reveal himself to this crazy woman like this? Like, why didn't he just say, Hey, it's me! Wake up! I'm not the landscaper, I'm the Lord. Hello! Like, why of all of the ways that he decided to reveal himself to her, he looks and he says, Mary. You want to know why? Here's what I think. I think the reason Jesus said her name is because he wants her to know and he wants you to know that he is a living Savior who knows your name and desires a personal relationship with you, no matter who you are or where you come from. He says, Mary... And, of course, her first response is when she realizes Jesus is to hug him. She's like, I've lost you once. I don't want to lose you again. But he said to her, verse 17, don't cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers. I want you to hang on to this. This is the verse we'll rest on and the rest of our time together. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went, and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, there is so much that could be said about this. But what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to share with you three things that I believe Jesus wants you to do today. Three action steps that I believe Jesus wants you to take in light of his resurrection. And the first thing that Jesus, I believe, is calling you to do today is to bring your past to him. In verse 17, again, Jesus said to Mary... Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. What's amazing to me here is when Jesus says, go to my brothers, who's he talking about? Anybody know? His disciples, the people who just abandoned him, the the people who just denied him whenever he needed them the most. And yet rather than Jesus getting up out of the grave and saying, Hey, how do you like me now? Right, You bunch of cowards, what's up? He says, not just go to my disciples, not just go to those people who follow me, go to my brothers. Jesus does not hold a grudge against these men. He doesn't rub their failures and their flaws right in their faces. Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm about to go to be my father. And by the way, my father is their father and my God is their God. Guys, the reason this is so important is because it reveals the most glorious truth in the entire universe which is the fact that your relationship with God is not dependent on what you have done for God, but what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Which means if you find yourself today walking in here and you're carrying guilt and shame, if you hear this inner critic inside of your voice or inside of your head that just keeps telling you you are not enough, you are a failure, you are a nobody, and you find yourself as a result, you're, you're walking around the room today and you're judgmental and you're critical and you're self-deprecating, I want to encourage you this morning to take all of your past to the risen Jesus. To stop spending so much time remembering the failures that Jesus has spent so much love telling you it's time to forget. It's time to change the subject. Some of you say, Jared, you have no idea what I have done. You have no idea. My, my, my spouse doesn't know. Nobody knows all the stuff that I've done. You're right. I don't know what you've done, but Jesus Christ knows what you've done. And while you were still a sinner, he died for you to forgive you of every single one of those sins. And therefore, today, I want to encourage you to bring your past to Jesus. Secondly, I want to encourage you this morning to not just bring your past to Jesus, but bring your present to Jesus. When Jesus says to Mary, go and tell my brothers, he isn't simply making a statement about forgiveness. He's making a statement about acceptance. And whether you know it or not, this is the one thing that you long for. It's why we get dressed up and we walk in a room. We start sizing people up and wondering, what does he think about me? What does she think about me? Am I better than him? Am I stronger than him? Am I more successful than her? Right? Am I a better mom than... It's why we look for acceptance feverishly in so many things, in accomplishments, and achievements, in pornography, in social media, and what the risen Jesus says to you today is that this human desire you have to be known, to belong, and to be loved is ultimately going to be met in him. He wants you to know today that, that you can come to him as you are and that he will receive you with open arms and he will fill you with his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And what that means now is even if your spouse leaves you, even if your best friends turn their back on you, you will never be alone. You will have the empowering presence of an almighty God inside of you, which means you will receive a new mind and a new heart and a new purpose and a new joy and a peace and an identity that is rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So bring your present to him today. Come as you really are. Third and finally, I want to encourage you to not just bring to Jesus your past, to not just bring him your present, but to also bring him your future. As most of you know, happiness has been on the decline in the United States since the 1960s. Mental illness is through the roof. Psychologists are now using words like epidemic for anxiety and depression and bipolar. Antidepressants have become a multi-billion dollar industry. The best-selling prescription drug in the United States right now is an antipsychotic drug that sells over $7 The family is breaking down. Divorce is at an all-time high. And even if you're here and you're like, actually, man, my life is pretty good, I think you would still have to agree in the words of Carl Rainer that no matter how good your life is, all of your symphonies remain unfinished. Meaning no matter how much money you make or how healthy your body is or how smart you are or how good your kids act, there's always a sense, and you know it, that my life is an unfinished symphony. Something is still missing. The truth is, in just a moment, you're going to walk out this door and reality is going to hit you in the face again. This life is hard. We all sin. We all get sinned against. We got body slammed time after time after time. And eventually, we all will suffer to the point that we are weakened and then we'll die. And that's bad news. But the good news is this morning and the reason that we celebrate Easter as Christians all across the world is if you trust in the risen Jesus. If you will give him your past and present and future, just as Jesus experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, you too can experience a death, burial, and resurrection. What is true of Jesus can become true of you. What happened to him will one day happen to you, in that one day you will die, your body will go to the ground, but one day if you trust in Christ, your soul will be put back into your body in a cosmic act of recreation where you will finally be transformed into the man or the woman that you were created to be. This is your destiny if you trust in Jesus. You will be just as you are right now, but with all of the sand rinsed out of you, which means... There'll be no more brokenness, no more sickness, no more dysfunction, no more guilt, no more shame, no more fear. You will be sinless, immortal, incapable of suffering, and therefore finally and fully, forever alive. I want to end this morning by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but Peter is coming to the end of his life, and he is still, I mean, he still has not recovered from the resurrection. He is writing to a group of people who are suffering immensely. I'm talking about people who are being impaled with stakes and set on fire because they do not refuse to follow Jesus. And he's trying to give them a sense of hope. And here's what he says to them. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 he says Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And where does our hope come from Peter? As my family is being Persecuted and murdered as everything's to be falling. Where's the hope come from, Peter? He says, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, don't forget that day on the cross where it looked like everything was falling apart. God was taking the single most traumatic event ever and turning it into the most beautiful event ever. He says, your hope comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look at this, verse 4. In him we have an inheritance. There it is again. If you are a Christian, you are a brother or a sister to Jesus. It means you are son and daughter of God. Which means one day, think about this. If you trust in Jesus, everything that Jesus deserves to receive, you will receive for all eternity. Like Everything you long for is wrapped up in this word inheritance. For in Christ we have an inheritance. And listen to this. It is imperishable undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed for the last time. Here's what this means, and we're almost done. Please listen. The reality is today you have been told that to give your life to Jesus means you have to settle for something. God is not asking you to settle for anything. What God is asking of each of you right now is to stop settling. To stop giving your life to things that you know is not going to satisfy you in the end. God is not offering out for any of you some consolation prize. Saying, please come to me. Please come to me. If you do, I'll try to give you something. This is not as good as what you were going to have, but it's, it's something. But rather, what God is holding out for you by his grace and his mercy and his love is the future you are longing for, a future that is as durable and rugged and immortal and eternal and glorious as the resurrection of Jesus. But for some of you this morning, please hear this. You are just like John in John chapter 20, verse 5. You're standing on the outside of the tomb, and you're not going in. And I don't know what's keeping you from going in, but you are this close right now to the resurrection of Jesus. But you have not crossed the line. You have not said to Jesus, "I want to give you my past, my present, and my future." You have heard this story before. You have. There's nothing new here. I don't think my sleeve. Right? It's. It's. You've heard this story before. But if you can be honest, it has not transformed your life. You are not any different than the person who says that they believe Jesus is nothing more than a liar or a lunatic. And today, as we come in for a close, I'm in front of a crowd. I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. I'm going to ask you to cross that line of hesitancy and guardness and ah, I'll wait and see how this all turns out to saying, Jesus, I trust that you are God's son. Who came and lived a perfect sinless life that I could never live. And you died on the cross for my sins. The sins that make me worthy of hell. I know that I do not deserve you. But I trust right now, Jesus, that you have covered my sins on the cross. You have paid for them in full. And that you are alive. And therefore today I give you my entire life. I cannot think of anything. I honestly cannot think of anything more tragic than for you to be this close to the resurrection power of Jesus and walk out of here without crossing the line. I cannot. And so here's what I'm gonna I am going to do. Because I truly believe you will never, guys, you will never experience. I don't care how, how much money you make. I don't care how good your business gets. I don't care if you find a different spouse. I, you, there's nothing you can do that will give you the love and the hope and the peace and the joy and the acceptance that you're looking for apart from the resurrected Jesus. Yeah. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite those who have trusted in Christ to partake of communion. We take of communion by tearing off a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice. You're more than welcome to do that. We have two sessions in the front, two in the back. And uh, it's a reminder to us that as Christians, we can eat, drink, and be merry today. We don't have to walk out of here with our heads down. We were dead, but now we're alive. Amen? Amen? But for those of you who are in here who are still dead in your sins, today is a day of salvation for you. I don't know who you are. But right now, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is probably convicting some of you that you're standing on the outside of the tomb. And I'm going to encourage you to cross the line. And so without anyone looking around, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close you to close your eyes. And I'm not trying to build an emotion. I just want you to be contemplative for one moment. And I want you to ask yourself, where am I standing? Am I on the outside of the tomb? Be honest with yourself. Has your life been transformed by what we believe as Christians is the greatest news the world has ever heard? If you were here today and you are not trusting in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that right now. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can repeat this prayer in your heart. There's nothing magical about these words. Nothing magical about them. It's just this is a posture of the heart. And, but you can just repeat this to yourself. Right now is an opportunity to cross the line by just saying, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I deserve hell. That I have rebelled against you. That I have taken for granted the very breath that I just took. I have robbed from you. I have chosen to worship the creation over the creator. And therefore, God, I know that I'm deserving of punishment. But I trust that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he took my punishment. I am trusting right now, God, not in my own works to make me right, to get me into heaven. But I'm trusting in the works of Jesus that is absolutely finished. And I trust that Jesus is not dead, but that he is alive. And therefore, I ask that right now that he would come and fill me up with his Holy Spirit and remind me that I am loved and I am forgiven. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Now, if you have prayed that prayer and you have crossed that line, I would encourage you in just a moment, Adam will be up here in the front. I'll be up here in the front. I would encourage you to come and talk with us. We had a woman that did that earlier this morning. You don't have to come and talk to us, though. You can talk to people you've come with. We'd love for you to process that. For the rest of us in here, I want to invite you to go ahead. And all of us can actually stand at this moment. But for others who have trusted in Christ, I want to remind you again that as we come to the table, we don't have to come with guilt. We don't have to come with shame. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us everything that we need through his life, death, and resurrection. So let me pray for us. And then we'll sing a song and take a communion and be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for the good news that we got to celebrate today. I pray for anybody who is here that right now that the resurrection has become old news. to. They've heard it so many times and have failed to respond to it, that their hearts have become hard. That you would soften their hearts right now to receive this message and I pray that it becomes alive in their heart and transforms them from the inside out. Jesus, you are alive. You are alive. And we thank you, Father, for, for your great plan. Thank you, Jesus, that you went and you suffered in ways we could never imagine. And whenever we were least deserving of it, you gave us your greatest gift by giving us yourself. Thank you for that. You are the conqueror of sin, death, and hell. Help us today, Father, to live as a resurrection people, as an Easter people, not just today, but throughout the rest of our lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.